All right, I'll try that again. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Um, my name is Erica Greeter. I'm a senior editor at Texas Monthly. And on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I would like to welcome you to the Texas Tribune Festival and to this morning's panel on the future of conservatism. I think the, uh, yeah, let's hear it. That is a heartening round of applause for the idea of a future, uh, which many of us <laughs> lately have reason to doubt. Uh, a few housekeeping things, and then I'll introduce the panelists one by one. Also, I'm sorry for the mic feedback. Uh, first thing, you're requested to all silence your phones, uh, but you're encouraged to keep tweeting if you want to. Uh, there'll be, I'm sure, some great insights and comments, uh, perhaps some jokes, and the folks who are not in the room will be the beneficiaries of your hashtag tweets. I just tweeted all their names, so if you want to, you know, praise them directly, feel free to do so as well. Um, we're going to be 60 minutes for this, and we're going to have about 15 to 20 minutes for Q&A at the end. Uh, so if you have questions, just hold them until then, and uh, we'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, with that, I'll, I thought we would maybe introduce the panelists individually, and then after int each introduction, I'll ask them to just give a, a sort of summary of what they think conservatism is, what it has been, uh, what this concept is that they are trying to ensure a future for. So I'll start with Eric Erickson to my immediate left. Eric is in town from Atlanta, Georgia, where he's a longtime conservative talk radio host, um, former editor uh, of redstate.com, the conservative website, uh, recently started a new website. He's the editor of theresurgent.com. Um, and he's been having a very interesting year. <laughs> Eric? Uh, so the way I've always viewed conservatism is kind of where community meets the Chesterton concept of the democracy of the dead. Uh, we do things the way we do them, not because we decided, but because the people who came before us through trial and error figured out the best way to do it over time. And we shouldn't change those ways except through a slow process. We know that community works best as far as a form of governance, so the role of a national government should be to do as little as possible to keep us safe from external forces so we can keep ourselves and our communities safe. Um, that's why think conservatism as a whole is for small, limited government. Communities do better than one-size-fits-all national government for 320 million people. All right. Uh, to Eric's left is my friend Ovik Roy, who is the opinion editor at Forbes, uh, policy advisor, um, author of two books, Transcending Obamacare, and uh, prior to that, How Medicaid Fails the Poor, and recently launched his own think tank. He's now the president of the Foundation for Research into Equal Opportunity. Did I say that right? On Equal Opportunity. On Equal Opportunity, sorry. Uh, so, and also I'd like to note in public that Ovik is a fan of the San Antonio Spurs, the greatest franchise in professional sports. <laughs> <laughs> a man of dignity and wisdom, Ovik. Uh, thank you, Eric. Well, I thought Eric, Eric did a nice job there of talking about uh, conservatism as democracy, that I've always loved Chesterton's formulation there. I would, I would, describe conservatism in the ancient sense of the term as conserving, conserving from a political standpoint, conserving the best of what we've inherited. And uh, in America, we've had a particular sense of what it means to be a conservative, particularly since World War II. Uh, and the way I think about that, to, to, to summarize it, is to say, to conserve the American tradition is something slightly different than simply to conserve the best of what we've inherited. Because the American tradition is peculiar. We're not like the countries of the old world, which were simply united uh, by tribe and language and religion. Uh, we, our tradition is, uh, is centered around the idea that people of all uh, creeds and races and countries and nationalities can come here uh, and make their lives better and the lives of their families. So uh, to me, what American conservatism uh, is about is about conserving that 
particular American tradition of being a place where all of us can come here and try to make something of our lives. All right, and to Ovik's left is Matt Lewis. Uh, Matt is a senior contributor at The Daily Caller, a commentator on CNN, and also the author of this book called Too Dumb to Fail, uh, which is now out in paperback, and which I was enjoying reading yesterday until Ted Cruz endorsed Donald Trump, and I had to stop. Uh, <laughs> Not the first time he has uh, screwed me over, but. Or, or, or me, uh, or, or us, I suppose. But um, based on that, I think this is a, a correct book entirely. Matt, can you? Enlightened. Yeah, thank you. Um, so one of the things I try to do in the book is actually to define conservatism. And it's hard because there is no conservative dogma. And um, you know, so what we're having a fight right now over what conservatism means. I'm with Ovik uh, with, your de with your definition. I agree that what conservatism means is conserving those good things about America uh, and our tradition and our history. The problem is that there are some people, some of them support Donald Trump, who their version of conserving the good things about America, making America great again, are not as pluralistic as our way of you know, trying to preserve uh, the good things about America. Things like the rule of law and uh, limited government, things that we believe in. The one thing that I think I would add um, as it pertains to sort of distinguishing conservatism from the left is something called epistemological modesty. And this is something to understand conservatives, I think, is to understand what this means. Uh, conservatism should be a humble philosophy. And what basically, we know that, that we live in a fallen world and that we can't create some utopian scheme to fix everything. And so that makes us hopefully a little more modest, a little more humble, and not as susceptible to grandiose ideas that we can somehow uh, do you know, engineering, societal engineering, and bring about a utopia on Earth, and that we can have these comprehensive plans and schemes to fix everything. We believe that the world is complex, and the best we can do is uh, move things in the right direction and that if we move too far, too fast, things could teeter over, and that would be more dangerous. Excellent, thank you, Matt. And uh, last but certainly not least is Bill Crystal on the far left, or your far right. Um, <laughs> <who's>... <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't even trying to joke, I just, I just bungled right. that, I'm sorry. Being on the um, far right of this panel is quite an accomplishment. I'm, I'm, yeah. <laughs> A, a, a true conservative these? icon. <laughs> uh, Bill is the founder and editor of the Weekly Standard. He has a long and distinguished career in public service, um, for which he has been uh, harassed in personal terms this year, unfortunately, because we do that now. Uh, Mr. Crystal, can you? Uh, well, thanks. Yeah, I've, Eric's little remaining credibility in the conservative movement has now collapsed to, the, uh, to his far right. But uh, um, I've totally cucked out. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I'm going to say for me, uh, I mean, conservatism has had a lot of internal debates. I think most vigorous movements, healthy movements do. You know, one's correlation to the vitality of a movement is, and I think this is true historically, if you look at religions, if you look at ideologies, vitality does correlate with quite a lot of internal debate, disagreement, different strains, having to work out disagreements. Actually, when people agree too much, when there becomes a settled orthodoxy, it's often near the beginning of the end, which is why until about a year ago, I thought a lot of the debates in the Republican Party and the conservative movement were healthy, and I honestly did. The Tea Party uprising against the establishment, some of the other debates on how do you adjust more traditional orthodox free market economics to help middle working class Americans. I think there was quite a lot of that discussion going on, 
Uh, it all sort of got hijacked or derailed, I'd say, by the Trump phenomenon. One interesting question is whether it comes back after the election. But for me, it was always uh, just, I mean, personally, uh, what was conservatism? It was, it was tough, uh, tough on communism. That was before 1989 <laughs> and 1991. But that correlated with the general belief in American leadership in the world. The lesson of the first half of the 20th century was without American leadership, things have been out of control very badly. The lesson of the second half, and I think it's a very true lesson of the 75 years since uh, 1940, is that with American leadership, uh, you can make mistakes and things can be tough, but it's not the same as having World War I or World War II. Free markets, again, taken for granted to some degree now, not taken for granted when I was young, certainly. And again, I think basically vindicated for all the problems, limitations, qualifications, you know, a billion people, more than of China in poverty in East Asia, because basically, to oversimplify radically, the governments of China and India decided to pursue market policies, which we helped them with, by, both by providing sort of a defense guarantees, uh, a safe order for them to operate in, and the free flow of capital uh, and labor, to some degree of capital, certainly, and of investment. Uh, and that's, I think, been a big success. The world's a lot richer. There are many more, fewer people starving and in poverty than there were uh, 50, 60 years ago. And that's not due to socialism. It's due to capitalism. And third, limited constitutional government, the rule of law. Again, that was partly in react. All of these are in reaction to something. Political movements often we all like to think that we develop our views by reading Hayek or, you know, Bill Buckley or Chesterton or something, and, but a lot of it is in reaction to things on the other side and to mistakes we see being made. And there, I think it was in reaction to the modern, sprawling welfare state and the erosion of limited government, of the rule of law, uh, of some sense of constitutional limits and rules. So I, I do think that's been American conservatism over the last half century, really. Uh, whether it remains that for the foreseeable future is a question. Okay, so we've been talking about conservatism as a political philosophy, um, but you know, Bill sets it up nicely. The vehicle for that political philosophy has been the Republican Party since the, in the modern context in all of our lifetimes. Um, the current Republican Party presidential nominee uh, seems to have a different political philosophy, which I think we, can, we, we can't really ask anyone to speak to because surprisingly there was not a, a Trump supporter who wanted to be on this panel. Um, Evan really tried too. I think he, he tried. He to did. Trump yeah, and he, he tried for quite a while. Yeah. Um, but so I mean, the question came up like, why are there no Trump supporters? Well, I mean, like we, it, they were asked. Um, but I thought maybe as a kind of approximation of, of Trump's Trumpism, Trump's political philosophy, I could ask you, Ovik, to yeah. explain to me why you're one of the nation's leading rhinos, quote unquote, but you're not a cuck. "Quote unquote." <laughs> wow. Well. Well. Uh, and these, these terms. Take, I, take I as long as you want on that. Yeah, yeah, I, I we'll, we'll just we'll just listen. Subject, <laughs> well, uh, I wrote a piece for Forbes uh, a few months back when Trump it was it became clear that Trump was going to be the nominee, where I made the argument that there was a distinction between that Trump actually had a coherent political philosophy. I think there's this prejudice, particularly among pundits, that Trump just shoots from the hip and he's chaotic and he has no real core uh, philosophy. He actually does. The, the, the philosophy of nationalism, uh, which Trump espouses, is from foreign labor, i.e., who believes that we need to close our borders from competition from foreign labor, i.e., immigrants. He believes that we should close our borders from foreign uh, competition in terms of trade. Uh, he believes very much in the sense of this American national identity, which is defined in opposition to foreign, uh, you know, globalism. He doesn't want us to be involved in uh, foreign intervention. He says we should focus our energies on America. Right? That's actually a fairly consistent 
uh, philosophy that's been around for a long time. In fact, the Republican Party of the 19th century was very much uh, a nationalist uh, party in a lot of ways. Uh, so the, uh, so that, that is out there, and that's why what Trump is saying has a lot of currency among the electorate. Because in every country, we've seen it in Europe for a very long time now, uh, nationalism has a, a certain purchase. Where is that different from uh, conservatism? Uh, conservatism, again, in the post-World War II Bill Buckley context that most of us uh, uh, ate our breakfast on every morning, was a, a, a synthesis of that idea of uh, an American identity with what we might call classical liberal principles of limited government, free trade, um, more engagement with the world. Uh, and so that's, that's the, the kind of the tension we're seeing today, is a tension between the people who, for whom national identity, I think, is driven a lot more by the America that, that existed 50, 60 years ago, which was uh, not homogenous in certain ways, uh, but, uh, but certainly fewer people of non-European ancestry in the country, uh, versus uh, the much more diverse in that global sense country it's all, today. It's also, a, I would also say, it's a, a, a conflict of visions on the right between what I would call a positive vision, a positive conservative vision, and a negative conservative vision. So Trump's vision is very inherently negative. We have to close off borders because we can't compete with other people, because our idea, we can't win in the battle of ideas. I believe that conservatism can win in the battle of ideas, that it can compete, that we could get Hispanics, for example, to vote Republican if we're espousing conservative ideas. And you know, Marco Rubio, who ran for president, uh, was, I think, a good representative of, of this philosophy. You know, he talked about how his, uh, his father and mother came here from Cuba. Uh, they came to Miami. His dad was a, a bartender. And Rubio always said, that journey from behind that bar to behind this podium is the essence of the American dream. But that one version of conservatism that believes in lifting people up and free markets and that, our, that conservative ideas can win in a free market, I think Trump's philosophy is inherently negative and pessimistic. Conservatism cannot win. Uh, we must close off America. So that's a big divergence. You know, one, one, one thing I'll just add to that as a coda is uh, Pew did a, a poll very, uh, recently where they asked people, and they've asked this question for a very long time, is your life better today for people like you than it was 50 years ago, yes or no? And what's interesting is if you ask Americans overall, uh, kind of a plurality would say, yes, life is better, uh, particularly, say, if, you, if you've been the beneficiary of the Civil Rights Act, you might think life is better than it was 50 years ago. But something like 74% of people who are supporting Donald Trump believe that life is worse today for them than it was 50 years ago. Uh, and there's a lot we can do to uh, talk about why they feel that way. But economically, empirically, in terms of the, 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 their net worth, their income, their wages, they are empirically better off than they were 50 years ago. So the question of why they feel that they're not better off than they were 50 years ago is, is very important, I think, in understanding the Trump phenomenon, deep, deep pessimism about where America is today compared to the 1960s. Well, let's go ahead and, and go on that. Why do they feel that way? Any, anyone? I would just say one caution. You know, Trump got 14 million votes, I think, about in the primaries. Uh, he didn't get 16 million votes. Uh, but he won. Um, he'll get 50 million, 50 million votes, let's say, in the general election if he gets 40 to 45 percent of the of the vote. Um, most of those, and the data, the polls show this very clearly. The huge majority of that 50 million are just Republicans. I mean, they voted for Romney, they voted for McCain, they voted for Bush. So one should be a little cautious in suddenly deciding that because Donald, I mean, he is the nominee. That matters. We should talk about how much it matters going forward. 
But a lot of the vote is just, I vote for the Republican, I prefer a conservative administration, I'm going to discount what the media is telling me and discount to some degree what my own eyes are telling me about Trump. <laughs> and it's not a crazy point of view. I've been in government, you know, it's a huge administration, there are going to be a bunch of people, you know, whether it's Supreme, everything from Supreme Court nominees to deputy assistant attorney generals who are going to be on the conservative side. If you're a conservative, you prefer that. And you rationalize, I would say foolishly, but others would say more, in, you know, in, in a reasonable way. Uh, voting for Trump. So the fact that he's going to get 50 million votes and even the 14 million votes, Trump's a huge celebrity. Uh, he was colorful. The other candidates knocked each other off in some ways, and there were all kinds of things that happened that needn't have happened. So one can overinterpret, I think, the phenomenon. I think one of the big questions, and I don't really know what the, obviously don't know the answer on this, is I mean, is it a big moment? Is Trumpianism somehow really, uh, you know, some of the future, or could it be the future, or does it have to be opposed because it's going to totally derail? American conservatism, that's possible. Or is it the case that sort of, there's always been some votes there. Bruce Buchanan got 20, 30% of the vote in the early primaries in 92 and 96. Ron Paul, who was crazier than Trump, honestly. And, <laughs> and I would say more dangerous than Trump in the sense of actually believing 9-11 truther and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, whereas Trump sort of dabbles in them and tolerates them. Ron Paul got 20% of the vote in Iowa and New Hampshire. So it's not as if there hasn't always been some vote there. Trump, huge celebrity, colorful, all kinds of things going his way. Maybe more people feeling the anti-Obama stuff kind of working Republicans up into a slight degree of craziness, maybe. Um, Trump was able to capitalize in a way that his predecessors haven't. But the big question is how big a deal, and for me is, assuming he loses, how big a deal is it going forward? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I would add something to that. I, I, I've been of the view that, that the Trump phenomenon is uh, reveals something about the electorate that's very important. It's not just, I think there are a lot of people who hope, well, after this election, maybe Trump loses, and then we go back to our regular right. scheduled programming of normal Republican candidates. I, I'm not as convinced of that, uh, because I, I think actually the Republican Party is in kind of a death spiral, where you have this white identity politics, which is so powerful, uh, where if you look at immig immigration, uh, if you look at, the, the, well, we think of ideologies, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, progressives, as having a, a views on sets of issues, right? There's this piece of paper, and here's a list of issues. Here's our views on taxes. Here's our views on welfare, et cetera. You go down the list. Uh, but actually, what really matters in politics is how people prioritize issues. What issues actually matter to them? What issues are threshold issues for them in terms of a candidate they will reject or support? And I think what we saw in this election is that for the, Repu uh, the base Republican voter, immigration and illegal immigration in particular, is by far the most important issue. They're willing to tolerate heterodoxy on almost everything that conservatives believe, but the one thing they're not willing to tolerate heterodoxy on is uh, amnesty for illegal immigrants. That's where Rubio really found That was really half the Trump vote. I mean, my only look, I, I, take, I think this is possible, what you're saying, but it's also that it doesn't look, I would say, if you came down from Mars and looked at the Republican Party, it doesn't look like a party that's in a death spiral. It's got 31 governorships, two-thirds of the state legislative chambers, majorities in both houses, and younger and, I would say, more attractive occupants of those offices than the other party. This is, I mean, in, it, well, I just think, well, it's certainly younger. The Republican conference in the House and the Senate is seven years younger on average than the Democratic conference. The Republican governors are, on the average, younger than Democratic governors. And they're good-looking people, too. I mean, have, <laughs> right, you, and have, they're you taken, have you seen Ben Sass? Have no, you seen Nikki Haley? I mean, the, the class of 2014, it wasn't stupid of us. I mean, I, take, I think Ovik's making an important point, which is it could go in that direction. But it wasn't stupid of us in early 2015 to say the class of 2014 was the most impressive Republican class of senators that had been elected in a long time. There was a huge amount of energy in the party. There were Republican governors being elected in purple and in 
blue states. They're quite popular. And we're going to Maryland right next door to me, Governor Baker in Massachusetts. Uh, we're going to elect Gillespie, I think, in Virginia. And I mean, it's just, it's hard to say that it looks like a, so that's the big question, I think. And I, I sort of agree. Part of me thinks it can't just be the case that Trump goes away and it's back to where we were in yeah. 2015. That's not how the world works. But the other part of me thinks it's also a, maybe an overreaction to say that this one guy got the nomination with basically 38% of the vote in the contested primaries and the whole world has changed. You know, let me give an example that, that relates to this uh, from the last election cycle. So in 2011, uh, you may remember Rick Perry, the former governor of this state, ran uh, for president, jumped in late uh, into the election, but rocketed to the top of the polls. So he was leading uh, the GOP field for, for a brief period of time. Then there was a debate in South Carolina where Mitt Romney trained his fire on him because uh, uh, Governor Perry had signed a bill that was passed unanimously by the state legislature to grant in-state tuition to illegal immigrants uh, or children of illegal immigrants who, had, uh, who were here and had graduated from high school in, in, uh, in, in Texas. And, uh, and, and Perry responded to the criticism by saying, if you disagree with me about giving in-state tuition to illegal immigrants, you have no heart. And the crowd booed, and Perry went from first to fifth in the polls overnight. Uh, and this was despite the fact that the other candidates uh, in, in that field had quite a few liabilities. This was not the 2016 field with, yeah. with the all-star governors. The interesting governors. thing, Avik, is if you look at the polling, the polling right. uh, doesn't show what you're saying. And yet, I believe you. It, it, <laughs> the well, polling salience is different from yeah, overall it resonates. Polling, so I, I think you're right. The polling. If you ask voters, like, how important is immigration? Exit polling always shows that Republicans don't rank illegal immigration or amnesty that high. And yet, intuitively, I know that that is a huge issue, and it obviously hurt Governor Perry. Can I offer an explanation that sounds like a joke, but is actually true? Um, so before I was at The Monthly, I was at The Economist, and at one point I wrote a story about circuses and clowns. Um, and I went and interviewed a clown and so on, and I called a sociologist who, or historian, Janet Davis, who might still be at UT, but she was here at the time. She'd written a book about the circus in American life. And so we had this great interview um, about the scary subject of clowns, and she said that interest in circuses and clowns always peaks. There's like clowns running around the woods in like, you know, North Carolina right now, right? Um, <laughs> During, during waves of migration, we've had you know, prior waves of like large-scale immigration, legal or otherwise, but it's like a clown, in her telling, was, is a figure that captures and summarizes our liminal anxieties about change. Um, so, because you, know, like, you can't tell if they're old or young or a man or a woman or like, they're dressed in funny clothes and they evil. act funny. Yeah, like, are they evil? Are they funny? Are they nice to you? Are they going to give you candy? Are they going to kill you? Like, um, so clowns and immigrants are kind of correlated, right? So I think that the, the issue that you're saying, you're correct, the polls show Trump's criminal anxiety are actually fine with the path to citizenship, uh, if you ask them the policy question, but on the sort of liminal anxiety issue, yep. the immigrant is, especially the non-white immigrant, right, is the other a figure that's gonna come take your jobs, your women, your, your whatever you think you are entitled to or you, you're owed. So there you go. Yeah. Clowns. <laughs> clowns. That's pessimistic. Isn't that kind of funny? I, I, you know, I, that happens in North Carolina all the time, though. It's, it's not just this year. It's been happening for decades, but your it's larger an Alabama point. too, yeah. So, I get um, your but I think I, I wanted actually to uh, disagree with, with uh, Bill a little bit. Um, on the second point, or on the point about the general elector, I agree. Um, I think that people are over, overestimating how much the fact that Trump is the nominee makes him seem like a normal nominee to voters who are you know, just not obsessed with the election like us. We watch this all day long, 24 hours a day. We know everything that happens. But if you're just a voter, Trump's the nominee, it might seem strange to you, but why would, if he's not okay, why would he be the nominee, right? Why has everyone endorsed him? Um, 
But on the first point, um, I remember in August last year when Trump went after Megyn Kelly, which we all remember that, um, you disinvited Trump from Red State's gathering at that point, saying that's inappropriate, it's indecent, it crosses the line. Um, and I remember reading you write that and thinking, Trump's numbers are going to go up. Um, there's a, absolutely a market for this. There's like a, a part of the Republican base that will be thrilled that he went after this uppity woman who spoke up to him. And they did. Um, right. So the idea that it's, I, I don't see it as an accident. Well, let me just, I mean, Eric should discuss this, but I also just say this. Look, I was wrong. I, so I, Trump announced in, what, mid-June, I think. Yeah. The first editorial I wrote was sort of, look, I, he shouldn't be president. I said he and Rand Paul are at the bottom of my you know, secret list of who should be president, which we, of course, <laughs> control out of the Weekly Standard. <laughs> and um, and but, so I was joking. And then I said, but there were three or four issues he's raised that are worth raising. So in this respect, I had, did have the correct intuition that he was onto something in some of the middle class, working class, economic anxieties, social anxieties, immigration. And I sort of had that stance for about three weeks. I disapproved of things he had said, but I wasn't out there screaming and yelling about it. Uh, the phone rings on a Friday in the office uh, in early mid-July now, so three weeks after he announces, and someone and my assistant says, it's, it's a woman who says she's calling for you for Donald Trump. So I figured it was Steve Hayes or John McCormick or someone, you know, <laughs> funny joke, haha. But of course I said, fine, put it through, whatever. it doesn't matter. And it was Donald Trump, actually, saying, hey, hey, they told me you said in your editorial that, you know, you wouldn't vote for me, but I'm going to change your mind. I like the, they say you... You, t you wrote in your editorial, because he doesn't actually read these editorials. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he gets the sorry. But I've seen you on TV, that I believe, because he watches TV obsessively. And, you know, you've been fair. You don't, quite, you don't say you're for me, but you've been fair. I appreciate that. Always admired your magazine. Huh. I'm sure that's, yeah, I'm sure he's read it carefully. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he's, he's of course, more principled. This, incidentally, there's a reason he's got conservative journalists, uh, except for the, these people on the stage um, who are more principled, sort of, uh, he's, 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 no, he's really, um, you know, curried their favor over the years with some success. Anyway, so we have this five-minute conversation. Hey, got to, got, to, got to hang up. The plane's taken off. I'm going to Iowa. He was going to Iowa. The next day was that, I can't remember what the forum was, where he said that McCain had, uh, he didn't respect McCain because McCain had been taken prisoner and McCain was a, therefore a loser or whatever he said. <laughs> I happened to be on TV the next day on this week and I said, A, for me personally, Trump was dead to me and this was just beyond the pale. This was, I think, maybe before Megyn Kelly, yeah, actually, before. right? Mm -hmm. And B, he couldn't win the nomination because, I mean, the one thing Republicans, you can say Republicans are, don't have the most progressive views on gender or on other things, but really <laughs> respecting the military? I mean, that is kind of a core Republican uh, view. And uh, then, of course, he insulted the soldiers who fought, and Marines who fought in Iraq by saying they had stolen money and so forth. And, and then so, he said that 9-11, George Bush, yeah. was it an inside job? I no, he didn't quite go that far. But he said okay. we li he purposely lied us into the war in Iraq, which is not something that Obama or, or Hillary or anyone has ever said. So, so I was wrong in that, yes. I mean, I don't know that it was, so somehow Trump has been, I don't know, what, what, is, what lesson does one take from that? I mean, it's not, it's, it goes beyond though that Republicans are, you know, chauvinists who are, don't like a successful woman like Megyn Kelly. I'm not so sure about that, because they do like soldiers and Marines, but somehow they were willing to ignore so many things that Trump said. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, to his credit, he has been able to tap into a level of desperation that a lot of voters feel, uh, particularly in the Rust Belt, uh, with jobs in decline, factories closing. He's been able to tap into that. He's been able to tap into a sentiment among Republican base voters who were told by Republican elected officials in 2010, 12, and 14, if you give us the House, and then if you give us the House and Senate, we will do these things. 
Uh, they feel like their promises were broken. So at this point, they just want someone to burn it down and help them start over. And Which Trump is a is very conservative instinct. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> willing to do that. Uh, but, you know, it was Jonathan Last in, in the Weekly Standard who pointed out that all of the people who have been pulled into Trump's orbit, people of integrity, come out of it compromised in some way. Uh, and the voters being pulled into his orbit now are compromised in some way. I mean, you have American voters on the Republican side who suddenly are praising the leader of Russia who was a KGB agent in the Soviet Union. Um, at some point, ideas have to transcend team sport, uh, but for a lot, of, a lot of Republican voters right now, it is a very tribal, uh, a, a tribal connection premised on a place's seat, you've got to be on the team, and they, I can relate to them and their concerns better than they can relate to me saying, I gotta, these aren't my principles, I'm not voting for him. And I think the strongest yeah. piece of evidence on, in a way, on America Ravik's side on the kind of, the seriousness of the moment, if I can put it okay. that way, is not so much Trump alone, but Trump and Sanders. And I'm not comparing them in terms of their character or personality, but 45% of American voters who have voted this year in the two parties' primaries voted for either Trump or Sanders, both of whom I think it's fair to say, and again, I don't say this as a normative judgment, but just analytically, are outside their where their party's mainstreams have been for a long time. That was a lot of their attraction, right? Sanders wasn't hurt by the fact that he hadn't been a Democrat until a year ago and that he was independent and he was actually willing to use the word socialist. He was helped by it, I suspect, uh, in the Democratic side. And Trump was helped by the fact that he was so disreputable and so different from Republican orthodoxy on something. Now, you can say, okay, hey, you know, maybe that's healthy. The whole establishment was ossified. The consensus was stale. There was too much. It was too close together. The center was, you know, was whatever, out of touch with, with actual voters on both sides. And we needed to shake things up. And that's not a ridiculous position. And often you do get this kind of phenomenon as a healthy shakeup on the way towards some new resolutions. It's also a sign, though, of pretty deep dissatisfaction with the status quo. And I don't know, and a little bit inexplicable, honestly, because it's, we had a very bad crash in 07, 08. We've had a rough you know, time, obviously, in a couple of in foreign policy and so forth. But it, it's not 1935. I mean, one understands why Huey Long and Father Coughlin were huge figures, <laughs> but there's right? A sense, I mean, it's, it's the country is not you know, doing that terribly. And for there to be so many voters so disaffected with political, uh, I'd say financial, cultural establishments. Uh, again, whether they're right to be disaffected or not, it can't be healthy. It's not a healthy state for the country. I think that's the sort of deeper version, mm -hmm. if I could put it that way, of, of what, uh, why people have a sense that this is kind of a big moment. You know, be, being, being the th token think tanker, uh, let me, uh, let me point, point something out, which is that the median income of the Trump voter is actually higher than the yeah. median income yeah. of the uh, uh, actual electorate. Right. So, so while there's been this move to Mexico, um, and there may be, there's certainly, uh, I'm sure, I, I know there are uh, Trump voters right. who are like that. I grew up in, in Detroit. There, there are plenty of people who are Trump supporters in Michigan who have that general point of view. But, but in aggregate, I totally and the Sanders voters and the Sanders voters and the Sanders voters average income I think was higher than the Clinton voters. Yeah. But so we are the, we are in a, a changing economy and we you know Sanders wants to blame uh, you know outsourcing or, and and free trade and, and and Trump wants to blame immigrants. The exact same things. They, yeah, but but the larger problem I think is going to be um, you know the fact that we are now having an economy, whether it's, it's automation, yeah. 
right? And so automation, you know, you, you don't pay somebody to refill my Diet Coke at McDonald's anymore. There's a machine to do it. We go to an ATM. Uh, we don't go to a bank. Uh, I know President Obama apparently thinks that's a bad thing, um, that, that ATMs are taking jobs away. But this is it's creative destruction. And um, the economy is going through these changes. That's the backlash, I think. It's not that people are like poorer necessarily, but they don't feel comfortable. They feel like things are changing. And then I think the really two things that we, we talked about this last night. One, the Republican base doesn't really care that much about conservative philosophy, which was stunning to all of us on this stage. That like, what? They don't care about uh, limited government or the rule of law. It's about us versus them. And if you look at the culture right now, whether it's Colin Kaepernick, whether it's these you know horrible police shootings that lead to horrible rioting, we are. I fear we are really entering into a, a an era where your political destiny will be almost solely based on the color of your skin. And that would be incredibly damaging for a country that's about an idea. But I think it's the tribalism run amok. And I think when, when there's terrorism, when there's police shootings, when Colin Kaepernick, Kaepernick won't stand, all of those things feeds into Donald Trump. He actually benefits from it. And the country's being torn apart, not um, just the party. You know who I blame is uh, baby boomers. Oh, of course. Phil? <laughs> I agree. Can you please I, baby, I, explain I am, to me why your generation is ruining the country? Am I the only baby boomer on this panel? No, I've always disliked my generation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, smug, complacent, self-confident, greedy, and then they... <laughs> All right. They've had, and they had three presidents in a row. I mean, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and President Obama, Clinton and Bush at the top end of the baby boomers. I think it's officially what, born from 46 to 64 usually. And Obama right near the end, the tail end of the baby boomers. And then in one fantastic final act of Wagnerian revenge, <laughs> the baby boomers, instead of yielding gracefully to the many <laughs> capable younger candidates who were out there, honestly, in both parties, uh, decided we're going to hog one last election and produce two of the least attractive baby boomers <laughs> <laughs> to run for office. And so we have, you know, this is, uh, hopefully this is, maybe it's the end of the story. The only good news on this is, this interesting question, is Trump a harbinger of things to come, or is it in a weird way the end almost of, a, of, a, of, a, of an era and of a generation? I do think generationally it's the end. There's not going to be another baby boomer nominee, I shouldn't think, I guess, unless one of them wins and runs for re-election. Uh, in, in, two, in 2020, president. right. So you're going to get down to a, a healthy generational change. But you know. well, we um, maybe have time for one more question, then we'll go to the audience questions. So start thinking of your Austin questions, then we'll uh, go through them. Um, but I think there's there's two ways to look at it, right? So there's a sense in which you can say maybe this is the moment the fever is breaking. Like Trump has really just laid bare things that were already in society that weren't being confronted directly. And now that we can't ignore them, we have to <laughs> grapple with them and move forward and evolve. But then, to Eric's point, I think that as you say, that there's a sense in which when somebody's character is this compromised, your integrity becomes compromised when you engage with him, right? So comparing like Trump to the Brexit vote in Britain, I was quite jealous of Britain because their vote to leave the EU was in a sense like a vote for Britain, the concept of the country, not for this very, very flawed, right. ugly, mean-spirited, nasty person, right? So I, I worry that every day, that since he's become the nominee, people are just getting further and further curdled, um, further affiliated with Trump. And I'm not sure how they yeah, do Yeah, you know, I, I think I am a, a very much of the, the malice toward none position uh, after this is over. I, I do think Trump loses in November, and the Republican Party is going to go through some soul searching. And I think it's going to take everyone, except I think the party needs to have nothing to do with people who aggressively join Trump's cause early. 
uh, in the Washington arena from the super PACs to the campaign. Um, because I do think that they, they benefited from something that they, they knew better than to do. Uh, but it, we can't dismiss the concerns of the people who voted for Trump that some of them did have legitimate concerns. Uh, and I do think that a Republican party, I was an elected Republican official, and I can't tell you what the party stands for anymore. The dynamic in Washington, D.C. seems to be whoever, and I think controls the agenda of the party, uh, devoid of principle. And I think that we're going to have to see a Republican party get back to saying we actually, we're more for Main Street than Wall Street. And we're going to have to see a Republican Party get back to saying uh, we believe in a strong identity in the world, uh, but we're not going to. We're going to actually act, exercise a little prudence in where we direct the military. Uh, but I, I don't think the party can abandon free trade uh, and and social issues. Let me just say one word, but I think it's a it's a very important question. I mean, I, look, the main reason the main reason I was against Trump and am against Trump is that he shouldn't be president of the United States. But the second reason, which is not trivial, is that he really would destroy the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And it, that's, that, you're more upset about that if you're a conservative than if you're a liberal. But actually, liberals have a stake in a healthy conservative movement, just as conservatives have a stake in healthy liberalism, right? Because at the end of the day, both are going to be in power at some point. I would say three or four months, I don't know what to think. I mean, parts of it depresses me. I think on trade, real damage has been done. I mean, I do think there that it's going to be much harder for future presidents of either party, and there Hillary deserves some blame, too, for capitulating to Sanders, um, to go ahead with a free trade agenda, which I think is good for the country and good for the world, uh, as importantly. On other issues, I would say, compared to where I, what I thought would be three or four months ago, a lot of the Republicans have done a pretty good job of going further than I would like to go in sort of, okay, I'm for Trump, it's a binary choice, blah, blah, blah. But I don't feel like if you look at Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania or Rob Portman in Ohio or Paul Ryan or, I don't know, Governor Abbott and Senator Cornyn here or whoever your Republican office holders are, that they're, they're, they're really, they've had to capitulate as much to Trump as I would have expected. It's, they're still kind of sounding the way they did a year and a half ago. For, for better or worse, there's some limitations to that. And maybe the party can sort of dodge the bullet in some respects of Trump a little more than I expected. But on the other hand, the Republican, the presidential candidacy is an important thing. There'll be a debate watched by 100 million people Monday night in which there'll be no defense of free trade from the Republican and not much of one, frankly, from the Democrat. No defense of American leadership in the world from the Republican and very equivocal one, I'd say, by the Democrat who's got to defend Obama's policies and so forth and so on. If you look at the traditional Republican kinds of constitution. Is the constitution even going to get mentioned by Trump? That's been a core Republican issue for 30 years and a legitimate one in my view. So um, that is, I, I can't tell at this point, it's, it's, it's very interesting to watch over the next month, month and a half, how, how much damage Trump does, frankly. You know, you, uh, the, the topic of the panel is the future of conservatism. You'd asked the question about the baby boomers. I think one of the things, I'm not <laughs> optimistic about the Republican Party because I do think that this white identity death spiral is a real thing. But conservatism will always exist because conservatism is an eternal uh, principle. And younger uh, voters, particularly millennials, but also Gen Xers, grew up in a much more diverse country. And I don't think they have this kind of hostiles who didn't grow up or despair about a diverse America in the way that baby boomers and older Americans who didn't grow up in that environment uh, have. So uh, that's one area where I think things will naturally change as, uh, as the baby boomers die. Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay, um, we're going to go to questions now, Matt, I don't want to cut anyone off, but uh, we'll try to go fast, so please keep questions short so we can get through as many as we can. Hello. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Steve Keller. I'm a professor here at uh, UT. Uh, so my question is, limited government makes sense, um, but I think in some way we, we pretend that, that government 
owns the economy of the world, and that, that what happens in government changes so many things. But I'm, I'm getting a feeling that it's uh, unelected corporate power that, that controls more, particularly your point, Gary, about uh, uh, the checks that are getting written as to who gets to be in the government. And the we the people part seems to be sort of shrinking a little bit. So I'd just like to know what you guys think about that idea uh, in terms of uh, limited corporate power. Well, the two things go together. If you have a government that regulates every sector of the economy, well, guess what? The corporations that are affected by a particular regulation are going to lobby the government to affect that regulation. So it's not a surprise that we have more lobbying and more corporate power in the legislature because we're asking the government to do more things intervening in the economy. You want to get the money out of politics? Get the government out of the economy. Yeah, I, you know, the, I, I think that both parties at this point pick winners and losers in the economy. Uh, the Republicans like to accuse the Democrats of saying, well, they want to pick the winners and losers. But the, a lot of the Republicans in Washington do as well. Uh, when you get government out of aggressive regulation uh, and get government out of picking winners and losers, suddenly a lot of those corporate interests uh, start to go away. Right now, though, it's a lot easier for a corporation to hire lobbyists to go to Washington and get a regulation or a tax loophole than it is to compete against a company with a better idea. And so they go to Washington and suppress the upstart competition uh, and so they don't have to even deal with the competition. As a result, we're stifling innovation in the country. Yeah. Sir? Great. Uh, good morning. My name is Octavio Nojosa, and I'm, as an American who is of Hispanic heritage, um, I have voted Republican all my life since 1992. This is the first year that I, unfortunately, I will not be able to vote for the candidate who's heading the ticket. But I've been very much involved in the Hispanic conservative movement uh, at the national level, uh, certainly in, in D.C. And, and recently here in Texas. What are, what are your viewpoints in terms of how to save the conservative party by really engaging the, the Hispanic voter? And where did we go wrong? Wow. I know President Bush had a tremendous effort in reaching out and doing a great job in, in bringing in uh, Hispanics into the conservative movement. Republicans are, you know, are losing a generation here. Any thoughts? I think it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, I think Republicans are, you know, if, if, if I don't like you, then you don't like me. Or if you think I don't like you, then, then so, so now when Republicans now say, well, we can't win Hispanic votes, it's like, but of course you can't. You've been saying bad things about them. Um, <laughs> So uh, now you're right. Yeah, you are right. You can't win them. Maybe you, need, maybe you do need to double down on working class white voters in Ohio because you can't win Hispanic votes because you've been, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, uh, John Cornyn actually won the Hispanic vote as recently as 2014. When I say won, he, he, he got more, uh, a larger percentage of the Hispanic vote than the Democratic candidate did. So it can be done. But I think that Republicans have essentially brought this problem on themselves, and I fear that Donald Trump reinforces the problem. There's no reason why conservatives can't compete and win for Hispanic votes, talking about America, about entrepreneurism, about opportunity. Um, I, I feel like, if, you know, I, I know that, um, that Marco Rubio and, and Ted Cruz being Cuban, that doesn't necessarily appeal to other Hispanic uh, cultures, like, you know, like sort of obviously, but if Marco Rubio were the president and he were going on Spanish language uh, radio all the time, speaking Spanish, talking about opportunity, I think it could have been totally different. But as of now with Donald Trump, it's, uh, I, you know, I don't know where we go from well, there. Well, I just want to say, we don't know. I mean, we know that Trump will do very badly. 
Well, you may not do incidentally that much worse than Romney, interestingly, among Latino voters. Uh, we think we know that there will be effects down ballot, but we don't know that. Let's see how many what percentage Rubio gets but, but in the, Florida. This is wait, like Prop wait, wait. 87, though. No, That's the I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Prop, let's, Pete Wilson won. I know. That's my point. Hispanics going, initially I'm liked sorry, it. Let me, Trump is going to lose, I think. If Trump wins, it's a whole different story. Then I think you're in a party. <laughs> Look, then he's the head of the Republican president. He's going to define the Republican Party for a while, unless there's a huge split in the party. That's one story. If he loses, it's an empirical question. I mean, what will happen with that? with Hispanic in general, lost by one percentage point for the Senate in 2014 in Virginia, the state I live in, with Hispanic and generally minority voters, including Asian Americans, in 2017. Will there be some Trump hangover? You probably would be prudent in saying yes, but there's plenty of instances in politics where people have thought in some presidential election everything was gone forever, and then two years, four years later, in a bunch of Senate and gubernatorial elections, and in the next presidential cycle, it's not gone forever. And I think this is, so I think it's more of an open question. I wouldn't despair because of Trump. And I think it'll be interesting to see incidentally down ballot, even at the congressional level, whether people can separate themselves enough from Trump to do okay among various kinds of minority voters. You know, just one of my pet peeves in politics is how Republicans approach Hispanic voters, uh, largely because they approach them in the same way they approach black voters. Black voters in the United States typically have a shared history in this country. Hispanic voters are actually Argentinians, Brazilians, Guatemalans, Hondurans, Nicaraguans, Mexicans. Uh, they don't all necessarily have the same common story. And I think Republicans do a very bad job of reaching out to Hispanic voters by painting with too broad a brush instead of trying to target an overall issue about coming into the country, into the United States, for a better future for them and their family. They may all be from different places, but they're all here for generally a common reason. I just think, though, that when Republicans go about it, they've, they've always done it very badly because they're convinced we're going to talk to Hispanic voters like we talk to black voters, and they're not the same. And let me tell a story that's, I know we have a lot of questions here, but let me tell a story that's relevant to this. Um, my mother uh, immigrated to this country from India. She worked her entire life, never took a handout, devoted uh, to her family, worships every Sunday, but is, has been, is, is conservative in everything she does and the way she lives her life. But she has voted Democrat ever since she uh, got her citizenship because uh, she was a public school teacher and she had members of what was then called the Christian Coalition come up to her and say, well, you're not qualified to teach my son because you're a Hindu. And that made her a Democrat. Um, and that's not particularly about politics specifically, but it is insofar as there is an undercurrent in the Republican Party when it comes to the question of national identity where we think Hispanics or Asians are not fully American in the way that people who come from Europe are fully American. And if that is the underlying unstated attitude of Republicans, it doesn't matter what kind of outreach you do. You're going to make all those mistakes because you don't treat them fully as Americans. You know, there was a great study that the Wall Street Journal wrote about recently where it showed, I think something like 60% of all Hispanics in America today were born in this country, and yet we, we, we talk about Hispanics as, as about illegal immigration, right? <laughs> I mean, we have, to, we have to embrace everyone in America as Americans and, and really get over this idea that back to that principle. I like to say, we're the ones who treat people like individuals, but we're not actually doing it. And we got to get back to that principle. Good morning. First of all, I'd like to thank everyone on stage for a wonderful panel. 
Uh, my name is Varun Hukeri. I'm a freshman here at UT. And one of the biggest concerns I've had this election cycle has been Donald Trump's apparent coziness to isolationist ideals, whether it's his opposition to TPP and free trade, or a suggestion that we should abandon our allies in the East or in NATO. So my question is, will this quasi-isolationism become the new paradigm or the new standard for conservatism and the conservative ideology? I mean, I think it depends if he wins uh, or how close a race he runs or how badly he loses. I mean, candidates who lose badly to tend not to have their ideas picked up. Candidates who run good races, if he loses by less than McCain and Romney, it's going to be hard for people like people on this stage to say, oh, that was a total disaster. If Republicans hold the Senate and the House and he loses by three points, well, that's better than Romney, so what's the issue? And then maybe he makes a case. But I think that will be a huge debate in the Republican Party and in the country and on a bunch of these issues. I'm, as I say, on the whole, compared to where I was three or four months ago, I'm a little encouraged. I've tried to look down at the congressional district level in some of these primaries. There hasn't been some kind of slaughter of the internationalist Republicans by Trumpian Republicans. There have been districts where it's helped to be a little more Trumpian, especially on trade, somewhat on interventionism, that's murkier. But there are plenty of people who have won t contested Republican primaries at both the Senate and the House level. The House level is probably better, but there are fewer incumbents, some open seats, who are I would say Romney-McCain Republicans, let's say, as opposed to Trump Republicans. So I think it very much is an interesting question that will, will be affected by actual decisions of leaders. What does Paul Ryan do as speaker of that? Again, if Trump loses, he has a lot of power in the party. Former nominees do. There'll be Trumpians over the place. There'll be Trumpian challengers to people like Gillespie in Virginia. But Paul Ryan will be the speaker of the House, the Senate leadership. We'll see if it's Mitch McConnell or someone of a younger generation. Uh, 40, what would the Republican vote, the vote on TPP, let's just, before we get too self-flagellating on this, if we all think it's a good idea, which I think it is from a geopolitical point of view and marginally from a trade point of view, if TPP is a good idea, it was, what was the vote in the Senate, like 54, 45, and there were 41 Republicans for it and 13 Democrats? I don't think Republicans have this, Trump is something to, Republicans have to apologize for. But general Republican attitudes on some of these internationalist issues have been pretty strong, actually. Uh, I would say in both the House and the Senate, but it is an open question how much damage Trump does during the campaign and afterwards to those positions. I think, I think it's important to make a distinction between, I think that what happens at the state level or even U.S. Senate races is very different from the state of national politics in the presidential race. Like I think that Trump is of Republicans who win the Republican nomination in the future, and yet you could still have Jeff Flake and Pat Toomey and Ben Sass in the U.S. Senate as you know, good free market conservatives. But, but generally, the people who've changed politics more broadly, whether they've been winning or losing candidates, you've been able to see lots of their echoes at the state and local level pretty soon after. Why did people, people knew at the time that McGovern was, he got clobbered by Nixon, obviously, in 72, but that the party was gonna go in a McGovernite direction. Why? In 1974, a ton of McGovernite candidates ran for office and won for office, including knocking off some old-fashioned Hubert Humphrey, Scoop Jackson Democrats. Reagan gives a big speech for Goldwater in 64, Goldwater gets clobbered, Reagan defeats a moderate Republican and then a Democrat governor in, in California in 66 and becomes one of the most important Republicans in the country. So I think a lot of this really is a question for the future. Yes, if a Trumpian person wins you know, a, prim a primary in a huge state and becomes a leading candidate for 2020, that's a very different scenario from, it doesn't feel to me like a McGovern moment or a Goldwater moment in that sense. It well, feels it, to know, me a little more like a I don't know, Mike Dukakis loses badly, the Democrats are totally out of touch with the working class, they're never gonna win another you know, border state or another you know, sort of southern working class voter, and then Bill Clinton wins them all four years later. You, know? well, you, you make that point, if you actually look 
at the most aggressive spokesman for Donald Trump from the political class, it's all Republicans whose careers are over. Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Huckabee, Chris Christie, Sarah Palin, Jan Brewer. Newt. None of them have a future in politics. Newt. Yeah. None Sessions. of them have Sessions a future in politics. Uh, you don't see up-and-coming Republicans uh, being spokesmen for Trumpism. That's true. Let's um, sir? Yes. Uh, David Albert, professor of government. Uh, a, a lot of us wanted to believe that the civil rights movement had succeeded on a bipartisan basis on race and gender in this country. But when we look at this uh, campaign, it's kind of scary because, and I, wanna, I guess what I want to ask is, what does it say about the future of conservatism and the Republican Party that a candidate has, has won its nomination? What does it say about the Republican voters as well? With, you've called it white identity politics. I would call it dog whistle politics on race on religious bigotry, including anti-Semitism, and misogyny. What does it say that, that those sort of dog whistles have succeeded in your party? Uh, you know, what does it say about the party and the voters and conservatism? Well, I'm not I'm, sure it's my party anymore, uh, so <laughs> just to be very strictly <laughs> strict about it. But um, I, I made an argument recently, which has been made for a long time on the left, but is controversial on the right, that the Civil Rights Act changed the elect. We, we had liberal Republicans in the North, like George Romney, Mitt Romney's father. Those people are now Democrats. And a lot of people who were the, the, the sons and daughters of Southern Democrats became Republicans. And that alignment led to, that realignment uh, led to a different coalition that, uh, that has frozen blacks in the Democratic Party and not in the Republican Party, which I think is incredibly bad for blacks as well as for the country uh, because we don't have two parties competing for their support and the mismanagement of, of urban communities by Democratic politicians has been a disaster in my view. Um, and Rick Perry in this state has, uh, has talked a lot about that. I urge you to read his speeches on this topic. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I think it's very important to make a distinction between racism. This is often called racism. It's not racism per se, but, there, but the challenge is, and this goes to the point that Matt was making earlier about the parties becoming more tribal. When you have a Republican party and a conservative movement that is overwhelmingly like 90% white, that what that does is it creates an echo chamber. If you've never had a bad encounter with a police officer, you are much more skeptical when other people say, I'm having, the police are treating me really badly. They're shooting me when I did nothing wrong. Well, that never happens to me. That never happens to anyone I know. That must be BS. And so there's a, there's a that a geographic and demographic isolation, which Charles Murray writes a lot about in Coming Apart, which I encourage you to read if you haven't. It's a tremendous book about, about this uh, separation of the college-educated white population, the non-college-educated white population. Uh, you know, there's incredible geographic and economic isolation that's going on in this country that's leading people to look at this outer world that they're not a part of and seeing it with suspicion. Yeah. And I think that's the big problem. The, the other I thing is that, is that conservatism as a philosophy, um, if it's about things like, um, you know, limited government, uh, free, free markets, uh, individual liberty, all of those things I think are, are, should appeal to everybody. But a party is, is different than a, than a political philosophy or an ideology, and a party is uh, the cobbling together of coalition groups. And, and if you look at, and I talk about this in Too Dumb to Fail, if you, if you look at the coalition that has emerged, it's Southerners, it's rural folk, um, and it's evangelicals, by and large. I'm, I'm, I'm being stereotypical here, 
But that is part of the story of this, part of the story. I wouldn't say it's, it's the whole story. And then with the, the rise of Trump, I think you also have to throw in technology. Would Donald Trump uh, be the nominee if it wasn't for 24-7 cable news? I don't think so. With Twitter. Donald, Twitter. Without Twitter? <laughs> Twitter, so I agree with that. All of these things have converged, and it's a really weird, like, con, you know, just sort of uh, perfect storm, I think, that gave us Trump. But I want to differ a little from the excessive self-flagellation here of my panelists. <laughs> I am a Republican, and I also want to dislike, if I can say I dislike the, the very, I mean, fine, Republicans have nominated a ghastly nominee. Some Republicans and conservatives have actually refused to support him, uh, which is not the case necessarily. Uh, would not have been the case, in my view, if the left had nominated an, an equally ghastly nominee, and I think it's not been the case in some states where that's happened. But leave that aside. I mean, Jeremiah Wright. I, maybe I missed the, all the liberal academics who denounced him. Flat-out anti-Semite. Flat-out tribal politics. Barack Obama went to his church and never said a word about it when it was helpful for him to do so, when he was a state senator who had to establish his black identity after he lost two to one in a primary in, 20, in, in 2000 to Bobby Rush and had to show that he was really a man of the people and not some elitist who had come over from Harvard. That's fine. He, he denounced him, actually, incidentally. And that was why he won the nomination, and it's why he won the pro presidency, and it's why I think decent liberals could support Barack Obama, and I think decent conservatives shouldn't support Donald Trump. So I take that point. But suddenly, it's like the Republican Party's full of all these misogynists and all this. Who was the senator who eloquently told his fellow white senators what it's like to be stopped by cops when you, when, when you haven't done anything wrong? He's a Republican, Tim Scott from South Carolina. And all those racists in South Carolina seem to have elected him. He didn't get a majority of the African-American vote because African-Americans actually, for various reasons, good and bad, are committed to the Democratic Party. It's been 50 years, it doesn't, you know, but Tim Scott, a Republican, made that comment. Somehow those racists in South Carolina and Louisiana and New Mexico, those Republicans managed to nominate Hispanics and Asian-Americans and the racist voters in those red states managed to managed to elect them, and they nominated Ted Cruz here over a wonderful pillar, white businessman <laughs> of the establishment, and all the liberal professors at Austin were horrified. Who the hell is this guy, this Cuban guy who's the son of an immigrant uh, who worked his way up to defeat you know, a wealthy man who serve, whose wife serves on the boards of the symphony and who's a graduate probably of distinguished universities in Texas and stuff. So I'm a little, I'm not buying into sort of liberal condescension towards the Republican Party or towards conservatism. You know, one of the, the unappreciated aspects of the Tea Party in 2010 and 2012 is right. that the Tea Party actually raised a more diverse crop of candidates than the Republican establishment, who, which backed Charlie Crist and David Dewhurst and others. It was the Tea Party that supported Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and Bobby Jindal and Alan West and Mia Love and, and Ted Cruz and yeah. you name it. And while we're patting ourselves on the back, I'll pat some more. <laughs> um, this, the people up here are standing, you know, we're standing up against the nominee of the party. And I, I know it maybe doesn't, it, it may be hard to believe, but actually there are costs accrued. You, you're going to read about some of the costs that Eric uh, has faced in the New York Times, I think, tomorrow. Um, but I wonder what the Democrats would do if, if Kanye West or Sean Penn were ten, you know, eight years from now the nominee. Would um, Democratic and, and liberal pundits of, of equal weight, you know, of, of equal stature, would they speak out and stand up against those fringe voices, or would they fall in line and support Kanye because we got to stop the bad Republicans? I don't know. They'd fall in line. I'm I think sure. we're heroes. I, I don't like to throw that around. <laughs> I don't like to. No, you I don't wouldn't. like to. 
I, now I, he's I, gone too far in the other direction, you know? So. Next question. <laughs> Can I actually say, and, and I think we might have to wrap up, even though we have questions still um, that we want to save for harassing them on Twitter, but I will say that covering the primary, it was really, really touching to me. Just going to pat you all on the back. Um, that the people who are like the worst offenders as far as all these ills, right, the evangelicals who go to church, Mormon voters in deep red Utah, uh, movement conservatives, people from like the National Review, like they were the ones who were absolutely committed to their principles, like these guys here. So I thank you all for joining us. Thank you all for coming and hearing the discussion, for your questions. Um, <laughs>